This morning for our scripture, we're going to go all the way to the left-hand side of your Bible, to almost the first pages in Genesis chapter 2. Let us hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to all birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the place, its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. For out of man this one was taken Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were unashamed. The word of the Lord. Kids these days, right? Kids these days. How many of you have ever said that phrase? I'm raising my hand, so I'm admitting I have said that as I've worked with youth over the last 20 years. In fact... I feel like in my, in my age range, I'm actually 37 years old, so I was born, do the math, 1982. I was born March uh, in 1982, and so I'm almost 38 years old. I'm actually at the upper echelon of what they would consider a millennial. Like usually my year or the year before my year of birth is what they kind of consider the first years of millennials. But I've always felt like I'm more of a bridge generation, something that they've actually been talking about in the recent days more than they talked about in, in past analysis of different generations. And that there are certain groups that have more familiarity with the groups above them and the group below them than the previous years did with each other. But I feel more like my years of transition were even more significant than most other years of transition. Because there is so much technology that influenced those who are four to six years younger than me in ways that I was never influenced by. I grew up in much the same way as somebody who was 75 years old, that's 75 years old here today. I grew up much the same way you did. I shared a lot of the same communal experiences. I watched a lot of the same TV shows that you did. Now, I watched them second, third run, fourth run, fifth run, and you maybe might have watched them on first run. But I share a lot more with those generations that came before me than kids that are in my own generation that are only five or six years younger than me. And part of the reason why is because when I was in high school, I did not grow up with one of these in my pocket. And in fact, it wasn't until I got to high school that my parents even got the internet. And so I didn't really grow up with the internet as a, as a real formative aspect of my life. And so things have changed significantly. And I have found myself saying about people who are just a few years younger than me, kids these days. <laughs> so I'm as much to blame for that phrase is anybody above me. And yet, it's silly for us to say that, right? 
Because just before us, there was a generation saying about our generation, what? Kids these days. We're always complaining about the younger kids and what they've grown up with and what they've experienced and how their culture has been formed that's different than our culture. But I want to tell you something this morning. I want to tell you something, that there's something that deeply connects and unifies all of humanity in a way that this phrase, kids these days, does not recognize. I'm famous for saying this, I think, in other settings in this church, is that one day I was reading a book about 1990s culture, I think it was, it was in the early 2000s, it was talking about modern U.S. culture, and in the beginning, the foreword was, was a, a passage that so struck the nail on the head of describing 1990s, late 1990s America, that I was blown away by it. I was like, man, this author, this author who's writing the foreword is the person that I should be reading the book of because clearly they have the thumb on the pulse, the finger on the pulse of our culture. And I got to the end of the Ford and it was Augustine of Hippo who lived in the second and third century or third and fourth century in northern Africa, was a bishop of the church. What an amazing thing that something that was literally almost 2,000 years old at that point described humanity so well that even in 1990s, talking about modern day culture, it fit perfectly. Because humans haven't really changed all that much. We're very similar to what we were even thousands of years ago. We have the same kinds of needs. The trappings around us might be different, but humans at the core are basically the same. Now, we look at our passage today. We look at our passage today and we see the creation of humanity. First, God creates Adam, which is kind of a little bit of a uh, a device used in the Hebrew because it sounds very much like ground or dirt or earth. The word Adam is, is related to and kind of shares a root with that word that means earth. And how did God create Adam? Do you remember my sermon from a long time ago, the sermon after the one I showed the images? I remember all of you were afraid because I was stripping naked over that And what did I do? At the end of it, I took a a pile of clay, right? And I wet it, and then I started to form it with my hands. And I was showing you how God got his hands dirty, getting into the clay. And so God shaped Adam out of the dust, out of the earth. And so what a great play of words the Hebrew poetry has here where where it's talking about this man, but really it's really referring to the earth in which he was created, And God says it's not good for this man to be alone, this human, this individual, to be alone. And so what does God then do? No. He does not create the woman. He forms out of the earth the same place he formed Adam. He forms out of the earth all the beasts, the animals. And then he places Adam in front of all these animals. And Adam has the task, this lone individual human has this task of counting and naming all the animals, classifying them, right? And so he's sitting there, he's looking at all these animals, and he's noticing something about these animals. What is he noticing? That they come in twos. That there's pairs. And yet, among all the animals, among all the beasts that Adam names, none of them are suitable to be a helper, a partner, or as the word here in Hebrew is, an ezer, 
for Adam. None of them. And so the first thing God does is he shows the lone individual human being that it's not good for him to be alone by creating all the plethora of animals and beasts that he's going to have reign over. And he shows this man, this individual, he shows Adam that he needs a partner equal to him, one that can stand beside him, one that he is not standing over. Now, could God have made one of the beasts suitable to be human's companion? Sure, he kind of came close with dogs, right? How many of you are dog lovers? A few of us in this church, right? And so he could have. He could have created a creature that was good enough for our companionship, and yet God didn't. God didn't. Instead, he used the beasts to show the one human that he needed other humans. And so God makes him fall asleep, and the language then becomes that as he falls asleep, he takes from his rib, or the word more literally means kind of side, and he takes one piece of his side, a unified piece of his side, and he makes for him a suitable ezer, helper. There's some significance to the symbolism that it's a rib. First of all, How did God create Adam? We just described it. Out of the dirt. Why didn't God make the new human, the companion, out of the dirt? Yeah. Because these two together were supposed to be better as a unit than they were apart, right? Their community in which they created was supposed to be more significant than two individuals coming together, that they were creating a whole. And so the imagery here is more that God kind of split the prototypical human, Adam, in half, and half became woman, and half became man, and so that the two coming back together, as the scriptures say, may become one flesh. The symbolism that we are created for community. We are created for each other. And we need one another. Why the rib? Well, God could have made the woman out of a toe, right? But what kind of imagery would that be? That the woman would always be under the foot of the man. And so instead, where does the woman come from? The side. Where does the side give you an image of? That the woman stands equally at the side of the man as a partner, as a helper, or as the term really means Ezer as an equal. Think about this. This word Ezer says a lot about what this scripture means. 21 times the word Ezer is directly used. There's all kinds of other cognates of it. For example, Ebenezer. I raise my Ebenezer. Do you know what that means? It was a monument in which he raised where It was a declaration, God has helped me. That's where the Ezer, Eben Ezer, comes from. So Ezer's used in all kinds of other cognates, all kinds of other words in the the Old Testament, but 21 times it's used by itself. Do you want to guess how many times it relates to God? 14 of the 21. 
So if you ever hear a theologian say that this term in Genesis 2 puts the woman in subjection to the man, you can point to them that 20, 14 out of the 21 times this word is used, it is used to describe God. And is God under the subjection of man? No. Every time this word is used about God, it's because God has humbled himself to come down beside a human or a human community and to help them, to be a partner with them, to be an equal, in a sense, with them in a partnership. So this word is significant in this passage in Genesis 2. It's telling us that we, as being created as a community, need one another as equals, as partners, as helpers, so that we might be able to live better together than we can alone. The great thing about this is modern science has proven this fact. They've done tests on people who have spent time in isolation versus those who have spent time in community. They've done tests where they've intentionally isolated those that away from community and put others in community. And, and they've found every single time that humans flourish better when they are in community with one another than when they're isolated. They actually live longer lives when they are living together than when they're in isolation. And so we have shown that this very truth that was found in Genesis chapter 2 is still true today, that we need one another, that we were in a sense created for community. And technology has always impacted this. Technology has always impacted this because if you think way, way back before we had farming technology, what were we as humans? Hunter-gatherers. Hunter-gatherers, and so the very nature in which we went around nomadic and collected food formed the way in which we related to one another in units, and so we tended to live in, what, what, do you, what word would we use? Tribes. Nomadic tribes wandering around. And yet all of a sudden, at some point in history, human beings found a way to cultivate plants, to plant them intentionally and to get food from them, to raise and domesticate animals and to be able to raise them for food. And they began to settle down, no longer moving around the plains following after their food. They were able to stay in one place and cultivate their food. And it changed the way they interacted with each other. No longer was it just family units, tribes, growing around together, but instead it was communities that were gathering together in a region and staying there that were bigger than any nomadic tribe were before. And we began to interact with each other in different ways. There's a story that Plato tells in his writing of his master, Socrates. As Socrates is talking to one of his students, Phaedrus, and he is, in, and they're talking about whether or not giving speeches, oratory, rhetoric is, is as good as knowing something or is as important as knowing something. And then they begin to get into the topic of writing. And Socrates tells a myth that he had heard from ancient Egypt, a myth in which a god, the god of many different inventions, in fact, he invented uh, arithmetic and all kinds of new technologies, one day brings all of these technologies. His name is Theus or Thos, and he's the one with the bird head there. 
And he brings all these technologies before the god of Thebes, the, the, the patron god of Thebes, who later becomes Ammon, but in this story is, is named Thamus. And he says, look at all these inventions. Look at all these inventions. He said, in fact, I've created an amazing invention, an elixir of sorts for human memory. It's called writing. And so he presents to this king god writing for the very first time. And the king god looks at all of his things and he begins to classify them and, and give back feedback to Theus. And he says, this is all the things that I feel about. But now you've said this thing is an elixir for memory, but this is what he says. For this invention will produce forgetfulness in the minds. You have not produced an elixir for memory. Because they will not practice their memory anymore for those who learn to use it. Their trust in writing produced by external characters, which are no part of themselves, will discourage the use of their own memory within them. You've invented an elixir, an elixir not of memory, but of reminding. And you offer your pupils the appearance of wisdom, not true wisdom, for they will read many things about, without instruction and will therefore seem to know many things when they are, for the most part, ignorant and hard to get along with, since they are not wise, but only appear wise. Now, this is a several thousand-year-old writing about an even older history of when a, a god of invention brings writing for the first time to the king of all the gods, and then that king of all the gods does what? He says, kids these days! <laughs> Right? He says, all you've done is you've created an excuse for people to forget things. They used to have to remember things. They used to have to actually memorize the oral traditions and the histories and knowledge. And they used to have to internalize it and grapple with it. And they had to live with it. And now you've just created an invention that allows them to just forget everything and return to it whenever they want and pretend like they know it. And feign wisdom. Now, how silly is that from our perspective, right? How silly is that? And yet there's some truth in his criticism as well, right? There's some truth in his criticism. The more things we write down, the more we depend upon the histories and the things that have been written down before us, the less we do internalize and remember and understand and gain the knowledge for ourselves and live with that knowledge. So there is some truth there. And yet, we've continued to invent technologies. Many, many years later, not only was writing well into uh, use in all of human culture, but then all of a sudden one man created the ability to mass produce writing in the printing press. Have any of you read much about the history and the time of when the printing press came about? You want to know what most people's criticisms of the printing press sound like? A heck of a lot like our criticisms about the internet. You're going to flatten out knowledge? How is anybody going to know what is true and what is not when knowledge is just disseminated across without any authority behind that knowledge to show that it's true? The exact criticism of the internet. Right? 
And the exact struggle we struggle with today with all the technology that, that just puts forth everything as true, as authoritative, even though we know that most of it is garbage, right? Nothing new under the sun, right? Solomon said that in, song, in um, Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. When we begin to complain about the new technologies, when we complain about how things are changing and how things are being different than how we knew them, all we're doing is repeating the same thing the generations did before us over and over and over again, and we're blaming all of our ills on that change rather than on what is inherent within every single human being. And what is that? Sin. The fact that we have turned away from the ways of God And that we've turned inward and we've decided what is good and bad on our own. And we usually get it wrong. Technology continues to advance. And industrialization happens all over the earth. And people move out of agricultural centers and into what? Cities. And as people are demanded as labor in these factories, they clump together in bigger and bigger groups to where now in the world there are more people living in close proximity together in cities than there are in agricultural communities where they are living further apart from one another, right? Now, if you think that that doesn't have an impact on how we relate together, then you're wrong. It does. And all of you don't know how It has impacted because all of you come from the modern day where most of us were raised in and around cities. And even if we were raised in a rural area, what were we impacted by culturally and socially? Because all the culture and social stuff that we consumed came from the cities. And so we're hardly good critics of our own selves. Humanity hasn't changed. And at the deep core of our essence is that same truth we find in Genesis 2, that we are created for relationship with one another. We are created for community. And so even when the trappings change, even when cities become virtual cities, even when labor becomes work on a computer, guess what we carry into those new trappings? The desire to be social. And so what begins to raise up in the late 1990s, early 2000s? Social media. Social technology. Now, it would be easy for a lot of us in this room to sit and think, kids these days, and pass off all of that as stupid all of that as as inherently bad and evil and doing bad things. But it would be better for us to examine the nature of humanity, examine our new trappings, and then begin to teach our kids growing up in these new trappings how to be human in a good way with these new trappings. Right? Wouldn't that be wiser of us, community? Yes. Are these trappings going away? So is criticizing and writing them off doing anything? No. Instead, let's pass our wisdom down, how we've learned what works and doesn't work for being human together in community. 
and apply it. Apply it to the new trappings so that our youth would know how to be good humans created in the image of a community God, even on social media. The amazing thing to me about the technology of today is if you really analyze it, if you really think about it, you can think of as many good things that it does as negative things. My kids grew up far away from their grandparents for all their life until about three years ago when my parents lived here or moved here. And yet my kids talk to my parents, guess what? Face to face nearly every week. What a blessing. How many of you grandparents in here whose kids moved away when, the, when they were becoming adults and then had kids and lived literally hundreds of miles away from you, but you didn't have FaceTime and Skype and all the other video conferencing? How many of you are jealous of grandparents today? Raise your hand. That you wish you could have been a part of your grandkids' lives in that way. Seeing them every single week, them seeing your face, them hearing and, and, and communicating with you face to face. What an amazing thing technology affords to us. And yet at the same time, we also know that the suicide epidemic has gone insane in the United States. And a lot of it has been tied to the lack of true community that can be found in these social media circles. That as people seek more and more these fake communities, these non-face-to-face communities, and they seek the affirmation of others with a click of a like on their post, that they begin to get depressed and feel meaningless about life, and they choose to end it all. A lot of studies point to that. And so technology today is simply a tool in the hands of human beings. And like an axe, it could be used for something good, or it can be used for something bad. Right? So that's what this whole series is about. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be examining and looking at different aspects of humanity and our need to be social, our need to be in community. And we're going to be looking at the new tools that we have to accomplish those things. And we're going to be trying to, to, to suss out in some way how to use these tools in effective and fruitful and God-honoring ways to create true community versus using them as selfish, you know, whatever narcissistic tools of our own ego or lack thereof. Right? So over the next four weeks, we'll be examining this. We'll be talking about this. But today, I want you to ask this one question of yourself. This one question of yourself. Do I have meaningful relationships of equality and help in my life? Do I have meaningful relationships of equality and help in my life? What I mean by that is do you have somebody that you know as well as they know you? that you know their needs as well as they know your needs, that you're willing to tell the truth to even when it hurts in the same way they're willing to tell the truth to you even when it hurts you. That somebody that you, when they tell you those hard truths, you'd believe them because you know that their nature towards you is one of encouragement, one of love, one of selflessness. Do you have a relationship like that in your life? If you don't, 
You need to start thinking about how do you cultivate a relationship like that. Because I think that you're missing something about what it means to be human when you don't have that. Because I think you were designed to be social. You were designed to have that equal partner, friendship, that ezer, which helps you to be whole as a human. Amen. So your charge this week is use social media to share about this series. Something you can do to actually encourage others, to help others learn about how to live better as a human being in the midst of today's society and culture. So I posted a video last night, kind of a little promo for this series. We're going to be posting more as the weeks go. We'll post this sermon tomorrow along with some other stuff. When you see that on Facebook or on Instagram or whatever else, share it. Share it with communities. And, and not only that, share it with those who you think might most be interested and show them how they can engage not only by coming here in person, but also online, gentlemen, back there. That's right, right? How many views, viewers do we currently have on YouTube? Twelve. Twelve. So if you consider that it's like one and a half people per view, we've got like 20 or you know, 19, 18, 17-ish people back there on YouTube. And, and we can get those numbers up if you guys share this in your communities and have people come and watch afterwards, right? So let us go out. Let us share with people the good news of Christ no matter what method of communication we use. Let us be ambassadors no matter what realm we find ourselves in, physical or virtual. Let us be Christ to all those who we come in contact with so that they might know Christ.